Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Mark. Book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 1 this morning. Mark is about three-fourths of the way uh, through the Bible. It's one of the Gospels. So we, we have been going through the book of Romans. Uh, but when I have the opportunity to be able to open up God's Word with you, I have the uh, opportunity to preach Mark. Uh, if you didn't know, my name is Chapin Jones. And my wife and I were actually playing a church over in Sealands Grove. And then just kind of preparing for that transition hopefully, Lord willing, in about a year or so, uh, the book of Mark more than likely will probably be the first book that we will introduce to our church. Uh, The book of Mark is very rich in the truths of Christ and where our hope is found and and where our kingship should truly lie. Uh, So it's a beautiful book. Uh, So I'm so glad to be able to open up the book of Mark with you. Uh, But before we get there, I'm a kind of person that enjoys a good little trivia fact every now and then. And I know some of y'all here are master trivia uh, gurus. I am not. But this is a little history trivia one for you. I came across a trivia question this past week. Uh, What empire that has existed throughout the course of history has occupied the most land territory? Of all the empires in the world, which empire has occupied the most land territory so when I looked at that question my mind went to the Roman Empire I was like that's a good guess right like I see some heads nodding I appreciate that because you know in school you learn how the Romans are powerful they were great at architecture they had a scary army and and neighboring countries feared the Romans they took what they wanted all roads lead to Rome Actually, the the Roman Empire is not even in the top 25 of most land territory owned in the world. The largest empire that has ever occupied land territory occupied just under 25% of the world. It's actually 24%. And that was the British Empire. The British Empire. Uh, The British Empire expanded from Australia. They had land in Canada. They had land in Africa. They had land everywhere and the empire lasted from about 1601 to 1997 you might have remembered in 97 on July 1st where Hong Kong they gained their independence that's when they say that's when the empire had fallen so I googled why did the British empire or really for any any empire really how can they continue to grow and take all this land there's really three big reasons Uh, empires they sought wealth power and resources so as the British Empire had looked across the world they were asking the question before they took a territory how would this territory give me one of those three things wealth power or resources so in this conquest of becoming the largest empire that has ever been they actually would go to war about 120 times that's a lot of battle that's a lot of war The British Empire, they had their eyes on this uh, massive kingdom that they were building. Couldn't take their eyes off of it. Really, if we look at any empire throughout the course of history, the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, uh, Chinese dynasties, you name it, it's all geared to one thing. They want to be known. They want to be feared. 
they ultimately want to be glorified. So as I was thinking about that, honestly, church, we're not that much different than the British Empire. Now, now I'll go out on a limb and say probably all of us in here will probably never own 25% of the world. I'm just going to throw that one out there. But how many of us are seeking something or are chasing something to build a little kingdom here on earth? I think a great question to ask ourselves this morning is, what kingdom are you living for? We have easily have set our eyes on the kingdom of money, the kingdom of lust, the kingdom of comforts, and many, many other little kingdoms. And without realizing it, we have sworn our allegiance to a kingdom that is here today, but then gone tomorrow. But what we'll see in our passage this morning is that there is only one kingdom that we should stand our allegiance on, and that is the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God will trump every earthly kingdom that there will ever be. So our main point this morning will be this. Jesus Christ ushers in a radical kingdom that calls for a radical submission. So with that being said, I invite you to stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. We'll be reading verses 14 to 20 of chapter 1. And we stand to read God's word for we want to hear from the Lord this morning. So church, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 14 of chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the higher servants and followed him. Church, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. So this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Mark. And really here in chapter 1, it will be helpful to kind of recap where we have been. There's a couple foundational truths that Mark is going to lay out for us early in the book of Mark that will actually carry us throughout the entire gospel. So first, what we see in chapter 1 is that there's this guy who enters into the scene. God was silent for about 400 years and then appears a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist came and he was preparing the way for a king. Now, when we read chapter 1, we see the preparation for this king is a little bit different than any other king. 
for what John the Baptist was doing in preparing for this king was saying, hey, wake up, prepare your heart. The king is coming. Repent of your sins. Come, obey, and be baptized. It's a preparation of the heart. But then we see Jesus, the king, he actually arrives. He shows up. He approaches John the Baptist in that Jordan River. Something amazing happens. And this plays into the big narrative of our text this morning. When Jesus goes to be baptized, two big truths happen or two big things happen. One, we see God give approval to his son. If you remember, when Jesus is baptized, we see the heavens are torn open. We see a spirit come and descend upon Jesus like a dove. And then a voice from heaven, from God the Father himself says, For you are my beloved son who I am well pleased. And those things, what was happening is that God the Father was identifying that Jesus Christ is my son. That he is the son of God. But as God the Father identified with the Son, Jesus does something extraordinary. For he will actually identify with humanity. For when Jesus was being baptized, he had no reason to be baptized. He was sinless. He didn't have anything to be baptized for, to be cleansed for. But yet he is baptized so that he will identify himself, the Son of God, with sinful humanity. So that's where we're at. The king is here. And just like any king, a king needs a kingdom. So before we really begin to delve into what does that mean, the kingdom of God, I think Mark gives us a very interesting piece of context in verse 14. So look at that with me, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. So, so this statement comes on the heels of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. He was tempted by Satan. He was surrounded by the beasts in the wilderness. And then the first thing, after this extraordinary uh, uh, feat that Jesus just conquered, Mark wants to tell us, hey, John is arrested. John the Baptist has been arrested. What, what, what is Mark trying to help us to see here? So now Jesus is beginning his public ministry. John the Baptist has been baptizing and preparing for the king for about six months at this point. So a way to show a transition in, a, in say, in power, show like, hey, stop focusing on John the Baptist. Now keep your eyes set on Jesus. John is arrested. All eyes now are on Jesus. John's out of the picture. What we see with Verse 14 and what John the Baptist will show you and what this, this truth is, is scattered throughout the entire gospel of Mark and really throughout the entire biblical narrative. What Mark is really trying to show us is that the proclaiming and the preaching of the gospel is not equated to a life of wealth and prosperity, but actually the proclaiming and preaching of the gospel is equated to a life of suffering and adversity. For that's all what John the Baptist was doing. And now he is arrested. He actually is a forerunner of Jesus. He kind of foreshadows what we should see and expect out of Jesus' life. For Jesus will ultimately be arrested like John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist, as we will see later on in the book of Mark, he will be executed. 
for his faith. Just as how Jesus will be executed himself. So, with that being said, Jesus is in the scene. And he's ready to establish his kingdom. Our first point, a radical kingdom. So throughout the course of history, there's many, been many different kingdoms that has popped up and then disappeared. But there's only been one kingdom that has truly continued to reign. And that is the kingdom of God. He has always been in control. He has always been reigning over this creation and even throughout the cosmos. So as we think about the kingdom of God, we we have to think of it differently than any other kind of kingdom that we may associate it with. The kingdom of God is not seeking more gold. It doesn't need it. The kingdom of God is not seeking more wealth or land. It doesn't need more land for it owns the entire world. But actually what the kingdom of God is seeking is the hearts of every man and woman. Where the kingdom of God is taking people who are in the kingdom of death and bringing them in to the kingdom of life. So now that Jesus has stepped in proclaiming and preaching the gospel, Mark summarizes it in one single concept. Look at verse 15 with me. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Believe in the gospel. So for us to really begin to grasp this concept of the kingdom of God, we need to understand that this is not a new idea in the Bible. Actually, we can trace the kingdom of God all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. As we just mentioned, God has always been reigning. He has always been in control. And his creation is His uh, under his kingship. But... One issue happened, sin. Sin came into the picture. We live in a world that is marred with sin. And now God's kingship is resisted. We don't like to be under the rule of someone. We don't like to be under the rule of something or under God. Because our sin says so. We love living for our own selves. Because as sinful people, as a result of the fall... Our default response is to simply live for ourselves and not to live for God. To make ourselves our own king or queen. But here's the beautiful truth. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and caused sin to enter to the world, God could have created a new kingdom. He could have said, you know what, I'm done with this one. Let me start a new one. But he didn't. For God will actually promise a king. A king who will come, who will reclaim the kingdom. Who will restore the kingdom. So really, at the heart of God's kingly rule, and this is so important as we read the Bible. At the heart of God's kingly rule, the center of that is his redeeming work. So every story we read through the Bible, we're asking the question, how is this pointing to God's redeeming work? of him reclaiming and restoring his kingdom. That's the narrative of scripture. Looking for the king who will defeat sin. Looking for the king who will defeat death and who will ultimately restore the hearts of man and woman back to God. So when Jesus says that, hey, 
guys, the time is fulfilled. He's saying, look, I am the king. I am the Messiah king, the savior king, and the time is here. The time is now. The kingdom of God is going to be restored. And notice the message that is going to be preached with this kingdom. To repent and believe in the gospel. So for you and I to enter into this kingdom of God, it demands a response out of us. Uh, For example, here in America, if we call America a kingdom, it demands a response for us to live in it. We have to pay taxes, right? Good old Uncle Sam will take a, a nice, easy 30% from you year after year. That's what's demanded out of us to be citizens here in America. When Mandy and I moved to Pennsylvania, uh, Pastor Corey, the pastor at Winfield Baptist, he said, hey, Chapin, just so you know, Pennsylvania is the state where you are born free but taxed to death. I mean, I will say Pennsylvania finds any reason to tax you. I, I lived in the South and Pennsylvania, I'm like, do I pay everything this year? But if I wanna live in Pennsylvania, it's demanded of me. I must respond to that and do my obligation. Same with the kingdom of God. It demands a response out of us and that response is a heart of repentance. It's a heart of faith, belief. Now this is not a new message that's being preached, right? Because the last six months, John the Baptist has been on the scene saying, hey, repent, the king is coming. But here's the thing, the people still missed it. Specifically, even the Jews, the religious leaders. For when Jesus said the time has, is now, the kingdom of God is here, you know, the Jews are excited. They said, yes, we will get our land back. The Romans are going to be slayed. For this king will come and lead us with a shield and a sword. But here's the thing, church. Jesus is not coming to gain territory. But actually what we'll see is that Jesus will be kicked out of territories. For he will become an outcaster. Jesus is not coming to find a throne to sit on. For he will exchange the throne for the cross. And Jesus is definitely not coming to shed the blood of the Romans. For he is coming to shed his own blood. That is the mission of this kingdom. That is the mission of this king. But church, how often will we miss that message? The message that we should be a people to repent and believe. For if we miss the message and the mission of God, it will be deadly for our souls. Because church, the gospel is not designed to gain any political forefront. The gospel message is not designed to control or to manipulate people. The gospel message is not designed for us to gain wealth. But the gospel message is for us to give glory to Christ and to advance his kingdom. So the kingdom of God's redemption begins with you repenting of your sins, turning from your sins, seeing the filth of who you are, running away and then believing in 
the gospel. And in Paul's simplest ways, he tells us what is that message? What is that gospel message that we should believe? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For Jesus died for your sins, he was buried and resurrected on the third day. That message saves, church. That's the only message that will save. Repentance and belief. But there's great hope for us this morning. Despite however this world may feel and despite whatever kind of path this world is going on, if you are part of God's kingdom, we can hold fast because there will be a day that this glorious king will return and he will make his new redemptive kingdom a new heaven and a new earth for those who repented and believed. For in Revelations 21, verses 4 and 5 says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Crying shall be no more. Mourning shall be no more. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is the message That Christ will come back and he will make a new heaven and a new earth for those who have been restored back into relationship with God. And that is the message that Jesus is preaching his entire earthly ministry. Calling people to repentance and faith. But just like how Christ displays his authority as a king over this kingdom, Jesus will display his authority over the sinner. So that will lead us to our second point this morning. A radical call. A radical call. So as kingdoms come and go, there, there is one common theme. Uh, it's trying to create the strongest military, right? Like if you want to survive as a kingdom, you need the best warriors. You need the best military. You need the best technology so that you can defeat other empires and take their land. So as we think about the kingdom of God and this glorious kingdom, you know, it, it makes sense, right, to find who, who can be the ones to build this kingdom, right? The strongest, the fastest, the bravest. Hey, maybe even God can use angels to build this kind of kingdom. But that is not Jesus's plan. Not through the strongest not through angels, but to build his kingdom through sinners. Look at verse 16 with me. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then hop down to verse 19 with me. And then going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. All right, so, so Jesus has now entered in to Galilee. He approaches four fishermen, Simon and Andrew, who are brothers, and now James and John, who are brothers. And these men were fishermen. That's what they did. Uh, the way they fish is a little bit different than the way we think of fishing. Uh, I love to fish. If you didn't know that about me, I do. I may not be great at it, but I love it. Uh, I take a pole, I got line, and I got a hook and bait. And my hope is I'll just throw it out there and catch a fish. 
right? I'll, I'll sometimes go out to the Susquehanna River. I'll go to Penn's Creek. You know, it's just a hobby. It's just a, it's just a fun thing to debrief after maybe a busy week, just enjoying God in his creation. I know some of you are trout fishermen. You know, trout season comes around. You, you gear up, you go trout fishing, you catch food for the night, right? There's nothing like good, fresh trout. So again, you know, you might feed your family for a night or two, but that's about it. You'll fish for a few months and then you'll wait till next year. That is not the way these men were thinking about fishing. Fishing for these men was taxing. It was difficult. It was challenging. They had these great big circular nets and they will throw these nets out into this water and there's big old weights on the end of these nets and these weights will sink the net down to the bottom of the ocean and then when it hits, these men will just pull and pull on these nets and they just hope that they threw their net in a spot that had a fish. And that's what these four men were doing. Day after day, just throwing these nets out, trying to catch a fish. But really, in this time period, fishing was like the predominant meat. So these men, like this was their business. This is, this is what their livelihood was based off of. You know, for us, more than likely, fishing is a hobby if you do fish. It's fun. But these men, this is how they're keeping food on the table. This is how they're taking care of their families. It's how they're helping their neighbors. So fishing and their fishing business is extremely important to them. But then we have this guy named Jesus come up and says, hey, in verse 17, follow me and I'll make you fisher men. What's interesting about that is that we read Old Testament stories or Old Testament prophecies and we see prophets saying, hey, follow God, follow the Lord, follow the law. You don't see prophets saying, follow me, but yet the, the immense amount of authority that Jesus displays as he walks up to these four fishermen was just saying two words, follow me. What Jesus is calling them to is a radical call. Because when Jesus says, follow me, he's telling them, you need to abandon absolutely everything. Your fishing business, leave it. Your family, leave it. Your way of gaining money and income for your family, leave it and follow me. And then I will make you a disciple. And I'll help you help others make disciples to be a fisher of men. A disciple is one who is a student or a learner. So Jesus is asking these guys to drop probably the one thing that they knew really well, fishing, and to start over and learn something new from Jesus. And what's so mind-boggling about this, and it can maybe be easily overlooked, Jesus could have picked any disciple. He handpicked his four here. And he goes to the fishermen, the, the smelly, the dirty, the nasty, probably fishermen. And he says, yeah, you, you will do. You fishermen will be just what I'm looking for. And he's going to use these fishermen, fishermen to be the ones, the agents to advance the kingdom of God, to tell others to repent and to believe. You may have remembered this story of Jesus calling these four fishermen in a different way. Uh, in Luke chapter 5, there's a lot more detail about this story. 
If we remember, uh, actually, we rem- uh, in that story in Luke 5, uh, Simon and Andrew were fishing all day and they weren't catching anything. Their nets have been empty. And then Jesus shows up, says, hey, cast your net on this side of the boat. They do. They caught so many fish, their net was starting to break. And in response to that, these fishermen comes to Jesus, bow down and worships him. Jesus shows who he is by doing that amazing miracle. But, but why is Mark leaving that out? That, that is a, a very big piece of detail to, live at, to, to leave out. It seems as if what Mark is trying to help us to see is essentially this one truth the authority that Jesus has over people. That the call, this radical call that he gives, the call to give up everything and follow him is completely worth it. So I begin to think about this, taking up this call to be people, to go out and preach that the kingdom of God is here. It is a difficult call. <laughs> Uh, it is a challenging call, but one way that I think can encourage our hearts to take up this call is actually to learn from missionaries, to see their love for Jesus and their love to take up that call. I hope this missionary story will bless you. This is a missionary by the name of Eric Little. Eric Little was a missionary in the mid, early to mid-1900s. And one thing about Eric Little is that he was actually a very successful athlete. He was actually training in London uh, to be this athlete, and he actually competed in the Olympics. Everything with Eric Little was going his way. He was a very a prominent rugby uh, star. Everything was going his way to get fame, honor, glory, the whole, uh, the whole deal here on earth. But great conviction fell over Eric Little's heart. For he felt convicted for the people in China. So what Eric does, he leaves his entire reputation in London. He leaves this opportunity to become this amazing and successful athlete to go preach the gospel to the Chinese. And then through Eric's ministry in China, he will influence many, many young men for the sake of the gospel. Eric Little will eventually, at the end of his life, be captured by the Japanese in World War II. And he'll pass away in their prison cell from an inoperable brain tumor. But one thing I want to bring to your attention about the passing of Eric Little is that in his final written words, he says these three words. It's complete surrender. That's all he says. It's about complete surrender. So as as I think about missionaries such as Eric, and as I think about us here as the local church taking up this call of advancing the kingdom of God, it goes down to those three words that Eric said so well from his prison cell. It's complete surrender. As Jesus approached these four fishermen, They're going to have to come to this crossroad moment. And they will have to ask themselves, is Jesus worth surrendering their lives for?
that will lead us to our final point, a radical submission, a radical submission. So Jesus, in his simplest ways, tells these four men, hey, follow me, leave your job, leave your family, leave your way of life, and come be fishers of men with me. So look at verse 18 with me. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then concerning James and John, verse 20, and immediately he called them and left their father Zebedee in the boat and with the hired servants and followed him. Church, these four men encountered the glorious son of God and their only response could be that of submission. They saw Christ as worthy to leave everything, to give up everything, their money, their family, their friends, their way of life, so that the advancement of the kingdom of God may take place. But can you imagine how the father of James and John, how Zebedee felt in that moment? Right? Just a second ago, his two sons were fishing, mending their nets. Then all of a sudden, Zebedee looks over and his two sons is walking down the road with two other fishermen and a guy named Jesus. Gone. Gone. Parents, I'm sure you can kind of maybe feel a little angst and Zebedee, maybe. You don't know really how he felt. Before having a kid, I thought in my mind that it would be easy if my kid said, hey, I want to be a missionary or I want to move for the sake of the gospel. I thought, man, that, praise the Lord, that would be easy for my kid to say. I would love for them to do it. But now that Tate is here, my heart will hurt <laughs> It would be so hard to allow Tate to want to go to China or Africa or wherever the Lord would call him to be. But parents, couldn't that be the most wonderful thing and hope to have for our children? Where your child will be so in love with Christ that they're willing to lead their friends, their family, their way of life for the advancement of his kingdom. Parents, do you pray that? For your child to be that in love with Jesus, for them to go. Won't be easy to pray that. It's not easy for any of us to take a call such as this. Unfortunately, cultural Christianity has said and really distorted of what it means to follow Christ. Cultural Christianity says that you get to design your Christian life the way you want it. That you pick scriptures of what you like and leave the rest in the shredder. You pick how much time you give to God. You tell God what you want. So in some ways, what cultural Christianity has done, instead of us submitting to God, is as if we're demanding God to submit to us. But that is not the submission that Christ is calling us to, church. Jesus will say in Mark 8, 34, 
He's calling the crowd to him and with his disciples. And he said to them, and here, here, listen closely to Jesus' words. Anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Church, to radically submit to Christ is to abandon absolutely everything even to the point where we exchange our life for the cross. We deny who we are. But here's the thing. When we radically submit to Christ, we are radically treasuring Christ. For we see Christ as the worthy treasure of our mind, heart, and soul. So I think a great question that we should ask Do you treasure Christ? Has Christ become a treasure in your life in such a way where you are willing to submit your life and deny who you are for him? (laughs) But the mind-boggling truth of this is that this is something that Christ even committed himself to. Where Christ will submit his ways to the fathers. And he will commit his own life and his own ministry in submission to the will of God the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus, he's praying. This is right before he will be crucified. And he knows his crucifixion is coming. And, And an immense amount of stress and pain is coming over Jesus. And he's in this garden and the only thing he can really help to do is is cry tears of blood. And he asks and he pleads with his father, is there any way that you can take this cup from me? But then ultimately in Jesus' prayer, he will say, Father, thy will be done. For he will submit to the Father's will. Right after that prayer, as Jesus is being arrested, he denied who he was as the rightful son of God. In Matthew 26, 53, as he's being arrested, he says, do you think I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me 12,000 legions of angels. Jesus could have sent thousands and thousands of angels to just finish it all But the next verse says it all. But how then should scripture be fulfilled? Jesus submits to the Father's will. He denies who he is. For God's kingdom is a kingdom about redemption. But who knew that the kingdom of redemption will be at the crux at God's only begotten son? For Jesus will give up his life on the cross, but three days later, he will gloriously resurrect, defeating sin and death. Because he is truly the one, he is now highly exalted on the right-hand throne of God. So church, this morning, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is now. The king will return. The question is, will you be ready? Will you be ready for the return of the king? As Christians this morning, my hope is that we will see a great need in our neighborhood, 
a great need at our work, a great need in our home to see the advancement of the kingdom of God so that we can see men, women, and children come to faith. But friend, if you are here this morning and you have yet to repent and put your faith in Christ, today is the day the kingdom doors are open for you. Go to Jesus this morning. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you saw from the beginning of time the need, the need of a king who will save. Oh, Father, it was at the cost of your son. So, Father, I pray that we will be a people that will not take that for granted, that we will be a people that will not take the cross for granted but yet that we will run to the Savior, that we will be a people to worship and bow down and to submit ourselves to the call of Christ, of following him. So Father, as we enter into a time of reflection, show our hearts where we need greater submission to you. In your son's name we pray, amen.